Good day to you, brothers, sisters, friends, and new faces, and welcome to Current Events and Christian Expectations. And today in this podcast, we're going to be talking about Christian nationalism. What is that? Well, that's Christians who think the United States should be a Christian nation. Today we'll lead off with Mark 12, verses 38 through 41. We'll have many other scriptures that we reference and read today, and we'll put those in the overview. But with Christian nationalism at the forefront, let's dig right in. Well, good evening, everyone. Christian nationalism, as it stands, is basically a a concept that the country should be run by Christians, Christian laws, and others who don't follow that should be dealt with accordingly. It's been in the news. Well, exactly then, what is it? It it initially doesn't sound like it's a bad thing. It doesn't sound like it's a bad thing, but the people who are saying uh, that we want, we Christians want a Christian nation, and the way they describe it, I would hope that just about 99% of them would say, no, you must be crazy. (laughs) We don't want that. So Christian nationalism, just exactly what is it? Is it this, Mark 12, 28 through 31? And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Question. Can these be legislated into law according to Scripture? No, they've already been made into law. (laughs) And they were were followed just as well as they would be followed now. Right. (laughs) They were made, it's God's law, and uh, are to be be believed and followed by we who are Christians. Question, can a law be passed to make U.S. citizens believe these two commands? Answer, no. Such laws can only be accepted freely and by faith in Christ. Question. Was America founded formally, legally, constitutionally as a Christian nation? No. Otherwise, there'd be no First Amendment. Please listen. First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. All right. No law respecting an establishment of religion. That means no national church. On the other hand, they're not going to prohibit the free exercise of religion. So churches are encouraged to flourish nonetheless, to be salt and light, as we're supposed to be, or as we would continue with Romans here, 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Can you imagine making this the law of the nation? (laughs) This is a law that Christians are instructed to follow and clearly cannot be made into the law of the land. No one can be forced to love God. It's got to come freely from the heart. I think uh, uh, other churches learn that with with the Crusades and also the Inquisition and a number of other things. I would hope that the, the lessons of history are clear. It does not work. For example, in our own nation's history, Listen to this. This is uh, from Pew Research of May 14, 2009. They're discussing this whole matter when the colonies were being formed into states, were becoming a nation established on law. What what should we do with churches? So listen carefully. This is about the debate that went on in Virginia, which was very 
uh, influential in the founding of this nation. Quote, the debate in Virginia profoundly influenced future discussions about public funding, public funding of religion. Mm-hmm. Indeed, Virginia's experience served as a primary historical example in the Supreme Court's pivotal Everson decision more than 160 years later. The debate in Virginia arose after the state's General Assembly sought in 1784 to pass a bill that would provide public funds to support teachers of Christianity. Future presidents James Madison, a member of the Virginia House of Delegates at the time, and Thomas Jefferson, then U.S. Minister to France and previously the governor of Virginia, urged the legislature not to pass the bill. In a famous 1785 pamphlet, Madison made several key arguments against the bill, including the claim that religion will flourish only if it is supported entirely by voluntary contributions. Mm. Okay. Obviously, the government then was not legally founded upon the Bible. It's also clear that the teaching of the New Testament was salt and light that guided the founders. In other words, the sentiment of the founders was one that was formed first from their own bad experiences over in Europe when churches had that kind of power. And then taking a cue from the gospel, which is about freedom, they clearly opt for freedom to reign in the public square of religion. Well, the problem, too, is if you you, uh, force religion, Christian or otherwise, on, you say, okay, I'm going to force Christianity on you. But it's Calvinist only, or it's Arminianist only, or (laughs) Universalist only. Like there's, how far do you take it? Oh, we will baptize all babies. No, we won't. Yeah, right. right. And we'll baptize believers or whatever. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. it's, yes. So, freedom. Listen to Galatians 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Absolutely. Behind this scripture is the basic truth that to make the best decisions possible, we must be free of external coercion. In this case, Paul was talking about Judaizers who were following his uh, church work and trying to convert his converts back to Judaism. Therefore, there was no national church like England's Church of England, which was supported by the taxes of the people in England. And by the middle of the 19th century, There were no more individual states in our country, such as Virginia, having their own religion, Virginia Episcopalian, where the citizens pay taxes to support it. So if you're a Baptist living in Virginia, early 1800s, get out! (laughs) You either leave or you're not only tied for your own church, you got to support the Episcopalians for your taxes. Yes. The founding fathers wanted religion to be free of government coercion. Okay. Whatever we believe about separation of church and state, it cannot mean or be construed to mean, as some want it to mean, separation of God from culture. The founders were for having churches in the culture, but as free and self-supporting. Their influence is stemming not from religious coercion, but from being salt and light. The Constitution is necessary for sure. Got to have it. But it's not sufficient to go it alone. We're going to have some quotes in a little bit here to show you what... uh, previous presidents have said about that. The Constitution was shaped from this perspective. It only works in the prevailing sentiment of Christianity, or we call it the Judaic Christian tradition. How does that work in a culture? Listen to Matthew 13, 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. 
Yes. If you know how to make bread, you got to have the yeast, the leaven, and then it makes the bread puff up and all that become a it's big loaf. go throughout the whole thing. Right. Yeah. And leaven here is not a symbol of evil. A lot of people interpret that, but there's nothing in the context. It's about how the kingdom of God affects this current evil age we live in. And this particular parable says kingdom of God, the leaven, it's hidden. You can't see it. You know, it's not visible. And yet when it gets into something like our culture or certain parts of our culture, when it takes hold, there's a transformation. Mm. Everything is transformed from the inside out. That's the whole point of hiding it in the flower. Mm -hmm. Wherever the kingdom of God goes and gets into, it transforms it for the good. In this case, our culture or parts of it. Here's John Adams. Quote, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. End of quote. Mm. This is in a letter he wrote to the Massachusetts militia on October the 11th, 1798. Now, let's move ahead 154 years. And here is President-elect Eisenhower. He'll be uh, inaugurated in less than a month uh, from the time he gave this speech. And uh, he's talking about how the government founded in 1776 was based on Judaic Christian values. This is uh, uh, a speech he gave on December 22nd of 1952. So listen to this. Quote, Eisenhower is talking. And this is how they, they he's referring to the founding fathers. And this is how they explained these words. We hold that all men are endowed by the creator. What they meant was not by the accident of the birth, not by the color of their skins or by anything else, but all men are endowed by their creator. In other words, our form of government has no sense, none, unless it's founded on a deeply felt religious faith. And I don't care what it is. Of course, it is the Judaic Christian concept, but it must be a religion with all men being created equal. So there you have Eisenhower saying, our government, the way it was set up, makes no sense unless it's, you know, a deeply religious felt experience. So created equal, what does it mean? Well, before the law, there should be no favoritism based on race, money, politics, etc. That was the idea of the founders. Mm -hmm. Uh, of course, it took a while because obviously some people were excluded from that process. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, that was the yeast that was getting into the culture to begin to change things. So, of course, that's the Judaic Christian tradition. Only the Judaic Christian tradition has the idea of being made in God's image, being endowed by our Creator uh, with these equalities. The sentiment of Christianity flavored, transformed the culture, and certainly shaped the Constitution. I'll just give you one example. All our sinners have fallen short of the glory of God. The founders took that into consideration, came up with a limited government. Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments, limits the power of the federal government. Limit, limit, limit. Mm. And we see that all people are sinners because ever since they did that, we've had an uphill battle <laughs> trying to keep the government from becoming totally powerful. Yeah. But checks and balances, they're all through the Constitution because they realized power corrupts and we're all sinners. And so the government must be limited. You can't just set up a totalitarian government and run with it. They experienced that in Europe. So this is the result of Christian influence. In this sense, our country was created out of this sentiment. As uh, with other podcasts we have given, this sentiment is about gone as to its shaping government for good. So what's the big dust up about Christian nationalism? Well, people, some people, certain people, certain groups want to obscure, obscure the truth about their own desires to run the country. It's a red herring. Mm -hmm. Now, here's some quotes. This is from 
Twitter, December the 7th of this year, and it's about a film coming out, a film by Rob Reiner, Meathead from All in the Family, if you guys remember that. <laughs> yeah. And the film is called God and Country. And here's what uh, Rob Reiner says about his film. Quote, Christian nationalism is not only a danger to our country, it's a danger to Christianity itself. Our film will be coming to theaters in February. Now, I, I say to Mr. Rob Reiner, in all sincerity, stick with The Princess Bride. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't, uh, don't, don't delve into yeah, this. Yeah, Spinal one. Tap. Yeah, don't uh, be a meathead. Yeah. Um, this is from Breitbart of January 2nd of this year uh, by Thomas D. Williams, Ph.D., and he's talking about this group called the Atheist Revolution. And they're fearful of Christian nationalism taking over. I'm fearful of Christian nationalism taking well, over. And I'm a Christian. Yeah. Yeah. The New Year's message from Atheist Revolution declares that atheists and other non-Christians should have, quote, the highest voter turnout of all because they have the most to lose when Christian extremists gain power. So in order to rile up its base, an Atheist Revolution group insists that Christian extremists like Nick Fuentes, who want the death penalty for non-Christians, atheists then need to get out the vote because, quote, you don't like what the Christian extremists have in store for us and because, quote, you don't want to live in their world. This is the warning of the atheists. And then they go on to say, this isn't about upholding abstract principles or doing the right thing. It's about our survival. If we want to have a future, we need to expand our efforts to oppose Christian extremism. Mm. People, this is just overkill. I mean, they sound like people who are paranoid. I am not aware of any movement anywhere, Christian nationalism, extremism, whatever you want to call it, that says we need to take over and kill people who disagree with us. Mm. So it's overkill. Just how many people are there like Nick Fuentes? I don't know how many of you know Mr. Fuentes. He is a white racist and anti-Semite. And yes, he does want power to be able to have power over people he doesn't like so he can get rid of them. Well, of course. Sounds like every other extremist on any side. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Christian or not. Yeah. yeah. Now, what, what kind of a backing does he have? He's got some money, but I'm not aware that he's making any changes anywhere. Of course, listen to this. Atheistic organizations have been calling for the elimination of Christians in the public square as long as I can remember. Sure. So they pick on people like him and then blow it way out of proportion as if this is a movement to take over the country. Um, it's a red herring. Mr. Fuentes is a red herring. He's not a problem. Here's another quote. This is from December 8th of a podcast with Bill Maher. He was interviewing James Carville. Some of you might remember him with the Clinton administration. Yeah. His famous slogan, it's the economy, stupid, yeah. which was big back in the 90s. Uh, and Mr. Carville was upset with Mike Johnson. I'll tell you why in a minute. And Christian nationalism. Apparently he thinks Mike Johnson, who's now Speaker of the House, wants to run the country like Christian nationalism. And Mr. Carville says, um, this business of Christian nationalism and Mike Johnson, quote, they're bigger than the Al-Qaeda. The threat is bigger than Al-Qaeda. <laughs> well, what did Michael Johnson say recently? Well, a while back he quoted a verse from Romans 13, which Randy will read, which says, oh, governments are ordained by God. That's all he did. So let's look at that. Romans 13, 1 through 4. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. 
For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who was in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Yes. Now, what's missing from that context? Why doesn't Paul say, make sure your government has the Ten Commandments. Post them on the front door. Huh? What government was Paul referring to in this letter to the church at Rome? It was, of course, the Roman government. Was it Christian? No, no it was not Christian no, government. Not at all. Paul was fine with telling Christians to obey a pagan government. He had no problem doing that. And he did not encourage rebellion so they could start their own Christian government. No. Um, so, therefore, be subject to the government you're under. And note this. This is where coercion does come in. Absolutely. He doesn't bear the sword in vain. And that's about enforcing the law. He's an avenger who carries out the wrath of God. He may not believe in the God of creation, but he is God's instrument nonetheless to do that. This is coercion, but it's in the realm of creation, not redemption. But you'd hear some, some of the lesser Christian nationalists say, yeah, but not the Democrats, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we try to finally slice that even further, and, and yeah. it's just not good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the church is not in view in this passage, nor is it the church's mission. Coercion, meaning the law has got to be enforced, because no government can last long without that. Now, what kind of laws did Paul have in mind? Laws that lead to public peace and safety. Law and order, as Romans 13 points out. Let me remind you what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Now, he goes on to talk about we Christians and our, the effect it would have for us so we can have godly and dignified live that way. But peaceful and quiet, that's for everybody. No outward disturbances allowing for quiet in our daily lives. That's what he wants. And he believed the Roman government was capable of producing that. And he didn't look for anything else or call for anything else or get a protest going to get the Ten Commandments <laughs> put up on the Roman doors. Here's another one. This is from PJ Media from writer Chris Queen of December 8th. And he's a fellow who thinks like I do. Joss Howerton, the pastor of Lake Point Church in Rockwall, Texas, took on the notion of Christian nationalism in a recent Instagram post. Here's what he says. Increasingly, any Christian politician or voter advancing their values is decried as Christian nationalism. Here's the reality. 99% of the time, Christian nationalism is just a scare label whose subtext is, you cannot advocate for your values in a public square, but I can advocate for mine. It's a red herring, he's saying, obviously. Christian expectation is that there'll be no Christian nationalism, which is also known as a theocracy, until Jesus returns. We'll come to that in a moment. This arrangement of so-called Christian nationalism is known as a theocracy. Here's a definition from Merriam-Webster. Theocracy, a government of a state by immediate divine guidance or by officials who are regarded as divinely guided. Well, this will happen for sure when Jesus returns. Yes, Revelation 11:15. 15. 
Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That is correct. This is clearly stated by Jesus himself in Matthew 25, verses 31 and 32. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Well, that sounds like a theocracy to me, which is being called now in Christian nationalism. One man ruling as Lord God over all the nations, and he decides who gets in and who doesn't. All right, but that's not happening until Jesus returns. Listen to Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Absolutely. It reminds me of a song. It goes a little bit like, There's a man going around taking names. He decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody will be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. Yes, that's when there'll be, quote, Christian nationalism, a theocracy, all this other stuff that you've been hearing from Atheist Revolution and Mr. Reiner and others, it's a red herring, meaning it's a false clue to distract you from what they themselves really want to have happen. So we'll I'm, get to that. I'm glad you explained a red herring. Yes. Might, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't want to, don't want to eat it. It's something you don't eat this red herring. Yeah. yeah. Um, over the last 50 years of ministry and teaching, I have constantly heard this business of Christians wanting to legislate Christianity into law and make everyone obey it. So whether it's the left saying it, or whether it's a Marxist globalist saying it or whatever, the whole thing is man is supreme, not God. They want to cover up their own agenda and they are ever zealous to set up their rule over everybody else. As always, what they accuse others of doing is the very thing they are wanting to do. Run the government, control the culture, absolutely. But even Christianity today, and by the way, that was founded by Billy Graham back in the 1950s. He would roll over in his grave if he mm. saw what was going on there now. I used to subscribe to this, and I, I could already see it was going haywire. And back in the early 90s, I canceled my subscription. Mm. So that was what, like three decades ago? Yeah. So, and it's gotten only worse. In fact, I saw a thing from Franklin Graham today who jumped all over him for the same thing here. Here's the uh, quote from Christianity Today. Christian nationalism is the belief that the American nation is defined by Christianity and that the government should take active steps to keep it that way. Now, let me stop right there. That's what's being pushed. I haven't found any Christian groups who want to do this. No. And if they did, I would be against them too. But it's just, it's a way of covering up their own agenda. It is a red herring, an era to distract you from the real thing that's going on behind the curtain. Continue the quote. Popularly, Christian nationalists, and yeah, they're a big group, assert that America is and must remain a Christian nation, not merely as an observation about American history, but as a prescriptive program for what America must continue to be in the future. Have they not read the First Amendment? There can be no establishment of a religion to run the country? Beats uh, me. So, let's just have a brief summary. Let's remember. And one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is because sometimes Christians, meaning well, say the wrong things. 
I hear people say continually, uh, America was built upon the, the Bible or whatever. That's true, but it's not true. It's depending on what you're talking about. Yeah. It wasn't formed legally. We're not legally a Christian nation. But it's clear that the, the, the founding fathers believed that, that was the values of Christianity was the one that would help move the Constitution along. And they are imbued with those values, although they're not visible. It, it almost like it was an agnostic um, foundation. Yeah. You know? There is a God, but, you know, you, you worship him how you want, whatever that is. Yeah. You know, kind of thing. Yeah, that was the basis. Yeah. Um, what do we find the, the Bible teaches? Number one, that nations rise and fall by the will of God and that we Christians are to be influencers, like those people on the internet today. That's right. Yeah? Like you are, with, with 106 subscribers, with a, right? With <laughs> six subscribers. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Yeah. Amen. Um, YouTube will be calling us any minute. Yeah. Any minute. Uh, influences the culture by the way of being salt and light, by way of what Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount. Number two, Christ, uh, Scripture teaches that Christian values, while affecting a culture for good, however, still can't be legislated. Yeah. Right? God is love. Believe in Jesus. You can't legislate. These things are. Either you accept them or you don't. And if you accept them, you're not going to be part of the bigger, wider nations we will see. Okay. In this age, Christians are called to be salt and light in what Paul calls a perverse generation. Back in Philippians 2. We, we Christians, are a nation to be sure. Keep that in mind. There is such a thing as a Christian nation. I don't want to get too complex here, but listen up. And we are called to be that. Listen to 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Right. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Who's a holy nation? Christians. That's the Christian nation. Not America, not England, not Germany, or anything else. And that's representative of the church. Uh, yes. Yeah. Of course, theocracies can be found in the Bible. Yeah. That is how the Bible starts out. A genuine theocracy begins in Genesis one twenty-eight. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So creation started out with two people who would rule, you know, for the glory of God, by the law of God. Now, how long the situation lasted is debated, but after the tragic fall of our first parents, the image of God that we were created in, according to Genesis 1.27, became perverted, and men began to dominate and rule over other men, not just creation. Listen to this from Genesis 10, 6 through 10. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, the sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Subdecta. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Yes, in First Chronicles chapter 1, verse 10, again says that Nimrod was a mighty man. He was first to be a mighty man. Does that mean he was out hunting animals? No, that was already going on because mm -hmm. you're supposed to have dominion and authority over the animals. This is about hunting people. Now, he built kingdoms using armies to subjugate others. And there would be many not Nimrods to come, the kings of Samaria, kings of Assyria, 
king of Babylon, the pharaohs of Egypt, all of them theocracies, mm -hmm. nations that were devoted to a god or gods, and everybody had to do the uh, obedience to not just the laws of the land, but the religious laws as well, okay? Mm -hmm. Only in Israel was there a difference. The king would rule over people as in other nations, but for the glory of the God of Israel. Now listen to this in Deuteronomy 17, 14, and 15. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you when the, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. All right. So then as the course of history comes, we go through uh, the Deuteronomy, the wandering in the wilderness. We get to Joshua. We go into the book of Judges. Hundreds of years pass. And now we're in 1 Samuel. And um, here's what's happening. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. The people have said they want a king now, just like Deuteronomy laid out. They want a king. They want a king like the other nations have. And Samuel's been all upset about it, and he spent the night crying and, and just having a fit. But here is how God responds, 1 Samuel 8, 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. In other words, when the time came and the people demanded a king over them, as in other nations, the real agenda was to get rid of God as king over them. They didn't want a theocracy. God's own people didn't want a theocracy. Why? Because God's people were mirroring the nations around them who likewise didn't want God as their king. It's a worldwide rejection of God as, of God, as God over all. That's why there is such an earth-shaking change in the way God rules his people when we come to the time of Jesus. So let's look at that. Question, is there right now in this country or in this world, a theocracy? Yes. Who's the theocracy for? God's people, nobody else, not for American citizens, but for those who are citizens of heaven, as Paul says in Philippians 3.20. What about those outside the church? Here's how Paul sums this up. And notice, there's nothing here that follows the insane advice of a Nick Fuentes or the people who think that Christians want this. If you're a Christian, this is what you want. You don't want to... <laughs> Do it the way the world does it. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral, immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy swindlers or idolaters, since you need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul doesn't judge outsiders. Now, if he was a Christian nationalist, he'd be doing that. Yeah. No, he doesn't. Yeah. That is, he doesn't execute any government sanction against them. The place where Christians make judgments is in the church. On ourselves. For ourselves. Because we are a theocracy under God, under Jesus the King. And if we go about the right way, it would leave little time to straighten out the mess outside of us. Purge the evil person from among you. That's from the verses earlier where he says you've got to uh, expel, meaning church him. Take him off the list. 
you can't be recognized as a member anymore. You know, not violent, just that's the way it's got to be. Yeah. Turn them over to Satan. Let the world have them. The church has no authority to sanction, jail, or execute. Our authority is spiritual. People, and again, I've heard this for 50 years. If I sound a little excited, I'm just, it, it, here it is coming back again. It's so <laughs> stupid. People who forever lecture about Christian nationalists say that if this happens, if Christian nationalists, these, these Christians get in charge, the gays will be executed. Do they not pay attention to Iran in the Middle East where they do it regularly, execute gays? When was the last time a church executed a gay? I, I, I'm not aware of it, okay? So, we don't do things. We don't make those judgments outside in the world. God makes those judgments. Sometimes through the government he ordains, and sometimes God just does it on his own. Mm-hmm. Now, back to uh, Paul's statement that God will judge those outside. The outside, of course, is the world. And here we get, again, one of these paradoxes, which rejects a theocracy especially those who purport to run the world or who want to run the world, not knowing that they are already under a theocracy, meaning a governing God who will judge them one day, as surely as he judges his own people. Those who decry theocracies are willfully ignorant of their own situation before the God who is. In other words, only the church is a theocracy. It's only the church can be called Christian nationals. And as to the obedience to divine law, the law of love, and so that even the leaders are under shepherds and not the divine shepherd. Listen to this and see if you could, <laughs> could you run a government this way, but you run a church this way, and that's how our theocracy under Jesus works. First Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And then the chief shepherd appears. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. The people who have the authority in a church, we in, in our situation, elders, mm-hmm. are the shepherds, but they're also known as the under-shepherds. But how do they exercise that authority? Is it like... A Christian nationalist? Does this sound like what people are talking about? That we're going to be executing people and forcing them? And not under compulsion. That is, the under-shepherd must be someone who takes the job because they weren't forced to. You, know? you have to want to. Yeah. yeah. But willingly, and not for money. Hello. Really? That gets rid of the politics <laughs> right there, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, yeah. Uh, not domineering over those in your charge, but be examples. That's how a Christian theocracy is run. And obviously you can't do that in the world. But those kinds of behaviors can permeate a culture and affect even the political situation to be a better political situation than it would have been if churches hadn't been around. Mm -hmm. All right. So one further word on the church as this age's theocracy about those who have voluntarily given themselves to Jesus for his service and glory. Listen to this passage because it's talking about, I'll wait for it, a national Christian movement to come when Jesus returns. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 3. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? 
Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Yes. He says, can't you as a church figure out your own problems and solve them? Why do you go to the world? Because mm. we are a theocracy with a king. We have all the things we need to solve our problems. Or don't you know that saints will judge the world? That's when Jesus returns. And then he says, um, and the world is to be judged by you. Can't you take care of trivial cases now? And don't you know that we're to judge angels? How much more than matters of this life? Meaning in the next life, we judge angels. And when, maybe it's one of these days we'll do a podcast on what that's all about. Coming soon. Coming soon, yeah. Previews, coming attractions. So Paul rebukes the church at Corinth for not knowing a basic truth. The church is now a theocracy and practice for the visible theocracy coming with Christ's return. The best place for learning how to live in the theocracy to come is to practice in the one that God has now the church and that's the christian expectation well thanks jim you've given us a lot to think about and i'm sure there's probably questions and comments on it so if you have questions or comments please comment on the podcast itself in the comment section or you can send an email to events and expectations that's the word events the words and the word expectations all together at gmail.com this has been current events and christian expectations And until next time, keep looking up.